I love happy endings. I love happy endings. I am one of those guys that just, you know, those movies that have the cliffhangers and the twist at the very end and the screen goes blank. I'm one of those guys that just doesn't love those. You know? Those movies have their places. Those books have their places. But I love happy endings. And even as I mention the very idea of happy endings, many of you begin to daydream in your mind of your favorite cinematic happy ending. The great metal doors open. Out walks Luke Skywalker. Han Solo. And the ever-present Wookiee Chewbacca. Dallas, can you give me your best Chewbacca voice? There it is. I've told my children if they can learn two things from Dallas, it's principle of character and the chewy yell. Those are the two things I want them to learn from Uncle Dal. The trumpets begin to sound at the end of the great stone hall, flanked on both sides by all of the rebel alliance, is Princess Leia clothed in a pure white dress. And her look of that is that of pure royalty. And Chewie cries out in his perfect yell. And the medals of honor are hung around the loyal heroes. And the crowd cheers. The trumpets go nuts. And you remember the score in your head because it's etched in there. And we all think, what a wonderful, happy ending. I love happy endings. In the movie Tangled, the kingdom rejoices because the lost child Rapunzel is found. Her whole life she wondered who she was, if she belonged, why she wasn't accepted, why she felt so broken and empty. And she longed to be one with her family in the kingdom of which she knew in her heart of hearts that she was a part. In the last scene, the city, long held in the grips of sadness and loss, is restored to rejoicing. What was lost is now found. I love happy endings. And when we are faced with the cares of this world and we cannot simply let it go, we remember Anna sacrificing herself for Elsa, an act, as they say in the movie, of true love that will thaw a frozen heart. And the city of Arendelle gathers together in their restored city and they rejoice at the renewal of life and love. Say it with me. I love happy endings. A restored kingdom, a royal hall, a rejoicing public, the hero that has defeated death and evil, the world that has been saved by loving sacrifice. These themes run deep within the heart of each and every human. No matter the age, each of us love happy endings. Some of us in the audience today, we may have grown too grumpy or too distracted or too hurt to acknowledge it, but we love happy endings. Last week, we finished with this amazing vision of Isaiah the prophet in which he saw God in his city, high up on a hill, lifted above all the other hills of any other God, placed in a position of authority and strength and honor. It says there in Isaiah chapter 2, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And shall be lifted up above the hills. Now this isn't a statement of geographical proximity or where it goes. It is a statement of worship. Because in these days, people worshipped upon the highest hills and the highest mountains. Gods that you know of like Zeus and Athena and Aphrodite. Gods like Molech and Baal 
gods that were not gods, that were fake, demonic entities with idols sitting in front of them. And so it says here in Isaiah chapter 2 that God's people will say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. And then there is this cry, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. What an amazing ending. What an amazing statement of what will happen. But this is not an ending. This is a new beginning. And this is a start of a kingdom that so many of us desire to be part of. I love happy endings. The Bible gives us a glimpse a number of times of this special day on which we will be united with our wonderful Lord. The earth will be renewed and we will finally know peace and shalom. The very thing that has evaded us and lost us on this earth. Turn with me to Revelation 21, and we're going to take a quick look at one of those statements of what it will be like when we are finally with our Lord. And I'm going to give you guys five characteristics of the new kingdom. So if you're a note taker, you can write these down. Five characteristics of the new kingdom. And my hope is, is in stating these to you, that we will all put our eyes forward onto what the kingdom is to be and then bring it into the present. Because I know for a church like ours, and I understand this, and I, I appreciate it in a, in a funny way, I, I feel honored by it. We are a church that is a consumer of teachings. We very much appreciate and acknowledge good, long, deep teaching. That's what I love about you guys. But I also know that when we have Agape Sundays, some of you have a tendency maybe to think in your mind, you may not acknowledge it out loud, but you think in your mind, oh, this Sunday is kind of a throwaway Sunday. This is a Sunday that, you know, it's, it's kind of a waste of a Sunday because we, uh, we're not going into a deep teaching. But guys, if I can get you to check your hearts and align them with Jesus Christ, what we're doing today, a short teaching, time in praise and time in fellowship, that is the kingdom. And that is what will be for eternity. Yes, the law will go forth, but... It says elsewhere that there will be no need for each of us to say, know the God. Here's what he seems like. Here's what he looks like. Here's what his characteristics are. It says that we will know him. We will know him. In Isaiah, in the Hebrew, the word, it means to intimately know every part of God. And that is what the kingdom of heaven is. And so let's take a look here at Revelation 21 and let's take this idea of the kingdom and bring it into the present, even with our brokenness and our flesh and our issues. Let's attempt to be the kingdom of heaven this morning as best as we possibly can. And I have faith that the Spirit will make it so. Chapter 21, verse 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying 
nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The first thing that we see here is that all is made new. Just as Christ's resurrected body had similarity to his older body, but at the same time they didn't even recognize him in his new body. This new creation is not wiped away to the point of non-existence and then recreated afresh. It is restored. Restoration is at the heart of our Savior. He doesn't just go, oh, oops, I made a boo-boo. i got to get rid of all these people and start over. He's about restoration. And this is the theme throughout the Bible, but it culminates here. This idea of newness is not something altogether new, but it is a restored hope of the old. And the greatest qualities of this new creation is that in the center of it dwell God and his people. And see, this earth, the one that we're at today, we're not to to, uh, misuse it, not to harm it, but the reality that we're faced with by the Bible is that this earth, the way it sits today, it will not last. Now, again, it doesn't mean we we go and misuse it and and treat it badly as poor stewards of God's creation. But this will not last. What the Bible tells us is that our best efforts to stop its decay will not prevail. It was not meant to prevail, but this new heaven and this new earth, they are created to prevail forever. And we will be with our God in the midst of it. All is made new. The second thing we see is it says, no more sea. Now, those of us that love the ocean, we like to surf, we like to to, uh, fish, we like to do all these things. This, to us, this is hell, not heaven. We think, how on earth? The ocean is so beautiful. I scuba dive. I cannot imagine not having that beauty of creation. But this is where we have to realize that Revelation has much mysticism and symbolism. And Revelation speaks of the sea many times, and I don't have time to go into it today, but it's connected with many different ideas and objects throughout Revelation and Scripture. The sea is known as the origin place of evil because it is so chaotic, it is known as the place where chaos dwells. And so it's symbolic of the chaos. There is no shalom. The exact opposite of it is the sea. It's symbolic of the rebellious nations that fight in chaos against God. We'll see it in Isaiah where he cries out and says, why do you rebel, nations? Why do you rebel against God? It could be the place of the dead. Revelation talks about how uh, the dead are pulled up out of it, and much mythology speaks to this idea in ancient cultures that the sea was a place that people thought of where the dead went to dwell. And all of these things could be true, but any of them, uh, even if they're true, it doesn't matter because they will be no more. What we understand about this is that what John is saying as he's writing this is that there will be no more evil or chaos. It will be defeated. No more waking up to the morning news and hearing the chaos of the world. No more rebellion. Those that choose to rebel will be given over to their rebellion and will be off on their own, no longer part of the kingdom of God. And no more death because it was conquered by the cross. I love happy endings. The third thing that we see If you look down a little ways down the page there in verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I guarantee that in this room there are people who have cried this week. And my heart goes out to you. Because in this life we have mourning, in this life we have death, in this life we have struggles. In this life, we, even as Christians who feel victorious in sanctification, we look at our lives and we wish it were different in a certain sense that we were more victorious and more sanctified and we mourn the fact that it is not so. But what happens when Jesus restores the creation is that mourning and death and pain, they are relegated to the same fate as the devil forced out of the presence of God and his people forever. No more pain, no more mourning. Does that sound like a happy ending? The next thing we see, number four, is this. Perfect relationship with God. As I talk to people and as I observe common culture and popular culture, the thing that I think we most often forget when we think of heaven is the thing that heaven is to be most known by. And I know there are children in the audience, but adults, I need you to focus in here and hear this one. Heaven is not a location. Heaven is not about the question of where. Heaven is about the question of who. So many of us spend so much time debating and searching for the question of where is heaven and how do I get there, when the answer for you is right in front of your face. Look to your left, look to your right, look behind you and look forward. The question we are to be asking when it comes to heaven is who? Who is there? And the answer is, is God and his people. You know, John elsewhere in one of his letters, he says that the way that you are guaranteed, you know for sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are part of God's kingdom is that you love God in response for his gracious love and you love his people and will do anything to be with them. That's my paraphrase. But the truth is, is that he says, if you love the saints, you know that you are caught in the love of God. Heaven is about the who. It's about the perfect relationship, and it starts with our relationship individually with God. We don't ask, where is heaven? The reality of heaven is who is there. The lost have been found. The bride has been rescued. Take a look here where it says uh, in verse 2, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is all because of sacrificial love in the form of the body and blood of Jesus Christ given on the cross of Calvary for you and for me. It was an amazing price to pay, an amazing cost for the Son of God to provide so that he might make us his bride. And this wording here, guys, prepared, adorned, these are important words to clue in on. They signify something that's about to happen that is very, very important. A bride adorned for her husband. I get a chance to do a lot of weddings, and I love it. As I said at the last wedding I did, at the beginning, I said, you know, I used to be one of those guys that any time a wedding came up, I went, do I have to go? Right? <laughs> Typical American guy. Do I have to go? No. Oh. I can sit in the back? Okay. And if they gave me a video camera, then I was good, because then I could be distracted, and, you know, but if I had to be in the wedding, I was like, oh, boy. But now I get this chance as this pastor to stand in the aisle, 
and I cry at the same moment every time. Every single time. The first time I did it, I thought this will pass. The second time I did it, I thought this will pass. The tenth time I did it, I thought this will pass. I stand at the end of the long aisle watching the bridegroom shake with anticipation of seeing his bride. And I want to ask sometimes, do you not know what she looks like? Because there he is. Why is he shaken? Because he knows something very, very important is about to happen. He has anticipation because the door is open. And with more fanfare than any Star Wars movie or Disney fairy tale, out steps the bride, adorned with her jewelry, robed in a beautiful white dress, beaming from ear to ear. Now, she may normally be the one that does not dress up or wear makeup. She may normally be the one that is quiet and no one knows she's even in a room. She may not even desire to be known by those around her, but on this particular day, she's been made ready. She's been made ready to become one with her bridegroom. And fellas, if you're not standing there in that moment, and I realize there are little pictures in the room, so get my drift here, people. Guys, if you are not standing there shaking with anticipation of what is about to happen, there is probably something that has gone definitely wrong in your walk with Jesus prior to that moment, if you get my drift. You're anticipating the moment you can be one with your bride, and she's adorned and prepared herself to be presented to you. And I think of all the pictures in Isaiah and the book of Ruth. I think of all these pictures where the bride adorns herself in order to go and be presented. Esther, adorning herself and preparing herself to be one with the king. Dear brothers and sisters, this is you and this is me. This is us adorning ourselves, preparing ourselves, partnering with the work of the Holy Spirit to prepare us for this day. No day can compare with this. All has been, all that has been will be swallowed up by a new name. Notice the symbolism in marriage. A new identity and a new oneness. Now hear me, please. I am making no veiled statements about the importance of marriage versus singleness. Do not take what I'm stating as lifting marriage above singleness in any way, shape, or form. Those two, for both the married in this room and the single, those will fade on this earth. They are only temporary. And they are temporary because they are a picture of this day. On this day, we all, single, married, man, woman, it doesn't matter who we are, we will have anointed ourselves with the incense and perfume of praise. We will have been bathed and washed clean with the sacrificial blood of Jesus and the pure water that comes from his well of life-giving water. And we will have put on the righteous dress of the most regal bride, the covering of Jesus' righteousness. And we will be presented to the one that loves us with all his heart, the very prince that brought us from death to life with his love. And we will forever become one with him at this wedding feast of the Lamb. I love happy endings. Now you said, we. Yes, I said, we. We are so individualistic in our mindset, in our culture, that we miss the whole point of what is being spoken here. Take a look at verse 3. Look at what it says. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. This is 
the king of kings, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. See, the last thing you can write down is that not only will we we be in perfect relationship with God, we will be in perfect relationship with God's people. All of the pain of the division of man from God, from the garden onward, the division between one another, the feelings of lack of acceptance, of being the only one in the room that feels lonely, of being the only one in the room that's depressed or anxious, all of those will go away because truth will finally be known. That every human without Christ is anxious and stressed and depressed. And even when you follow Jesus, some of those things carry over into that walk. And we are slowly but surely remade into the image of God, knowing what oneness is, fighting through all of those feelings, fighting through all of that brokenness, fighting through all of the conflict, fighting through all the vulnerability in order to become God's people. We do not take this for granted. We do not toss it aside. We do not say it's a maybe if you'd like to. It's part of Christianity. No, it is Christianity. To be one with God and his people is Christianity. I think of Ruth going to Naomi, and what was it? She said, I raise my hand, I say a simple prayer, I accept Jesus into my heart. No, she didn't. She said, where you go, I will go. And your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. This statement of community, this statement of divine oneness is what the church is to be made, what the church is to be known by. And all the pain of division will be gone and God will finally dwell with man. The words used here for dwelling place and dwell Here in this section, they have the Greek root of uh, skene, which is the same word that's used in John chapter 1 when it says that the word of God was made flesh and dwelt among us. It's a word that means to tent and tabernacle, to go camping. That's what Jesus did. He tabernacled among us. In the garden, God dwelt with man as he walked in the cool of the day. As the Israelites traveled through the wilderness, God dwelt with them in the tent of the tabernacle living in the center of the Israelites in relationship with them. In the temple, God's weighty presence dwelt among, uh, among the people above the ark. And when Jesus showed up, heaven and earth met as God became man and took on the tent of an earthly body to express his love for us. God dwelling with man. Each of these times, God breaks camp and departs, forced to separate because we shove him off, because we distance, because we take our brokenness and sin and our self-protection and we say, step aside, I'd like to be alone. Step aside, you haven't drawn me to you, so therefore I'm going to self-protect. But on this day, there will be no further need to separate. Never again will we need to self-protect because never again will we be without God our king. He will dwell with us and we will be his people. Never again will we be divided among petty issues or concerns or upset if someone didn't say hi to us or upset if someone didn't notice that we missed the Sunday. All of these will be gone. We will be his nation of kings and priests, worshiping, rejoicing, and communing together in his wonderful presence. You see, what we do today as we worship, as we sing, as we look to the law of his word and as we commune together in a feast, even if it is partially pizza, 
is that we look forward to this day. He finishes off by saying, Behold, I am making all things new. He says, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. We can trust God. We know that this is going to happen. As we commune together, we get to bask in his wondrous glow of of his love and of one another's love, and we get to look to this day in anticipation. Now, you might say happy endings are hard to find, Hans. I'm still waiting for one here on earth. You might say, I had one. I had it once, but it didn't last. Well, this is where I would turn your attention to that last statement where he says, Behold, I am making all things new. For those of you that aren't grammar geeks like me, this verse here where it says the verb of making, it is what's called a present active indicative. And this is important because unlike the fairy tales of Disney or Star Wars, this is not a wish. This is not a fairy tale. It is not a desire or a hopeful possibility. This, my brothers and sisters... This black and white that is in print, this is absolute truth. And our God gave his life and rose three days later and to prove it to us that this will occur. This is what will come to pass. This is, my brothers and sisters, a fact. It is called by some a prophetic present. It's not quite here, but it is assured for the future. And it is something that cannot be seen in front of us in in totality, but it will come to pass. And unlike the happy endings of Disney, where you shut off the TV and you go and you look at the rest of life and you realize that, man, life is not a happy ending right now, this will last. As you partner with the Holy Spirit, growing in His image, giving your life over to Jesus and His people, serving His kingdom, as you look not to the things that are perishing, but to that which is eternal, the Lord will continue to faithfully make you new. Dear church, no matter what comes to pass, no matter what destruction or failure goes on in the world around us, I want you to set your eyes on the horizon and see what Jesus sees. I want your heart not to be taken down by the things around you that your senses tell you are so real. Instead, I want you to put your eyes on the reality, the truth that is going to occur. On that day, all will be made new. Evil will be no more. There will be no more pain. God will dwell with us. And we, brothers and sisters, will dwell with him. In all we do, but especially in all we do this Lord's Day, this Agape Sunday, let us set our minds on that day. And as we do, we will rightly manifest his loving, faithful character to the world around us. And in this time of darkness, corruption, and brokenness, with leaders that are corrupt, that we cannot look to for hope, what a ray of hope will it be to those around us to see love manifested in our presence. Let us be God's people with him among us today. And let us make it true that there is a happy ending.